We continue our sermon series from the Lucan Gospel today. We have made it to Luke chapter 5. We'll begin by looking at the end of Luke chapter 4. So if you'd open your Bible where you can see the ending of Luke 4 and the early verses of Luke chapter 5 for a sermon entitled, A Colossal Catch, A Colossal Catch. We're no longer surprised in Luke's gospel that Jesus is able to draw a crowd, a multitude. Well, look at 442. And when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place and the multitudes were searching for him and, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Having witnessed Jesus's healing power, the crowd was ready to take this new teacher as their own possession. Already the masses have been amazed by the fact that even the demons of darkness respond to the rebuke of this rabbi, this Christ. They're asking the question, look at 436. They asked the question, an amazement came upon all of them. They began discussing one another, what is this message? What is this new teaching from this new rabbi and who is he? The crowds are ready to seize him and not let Jesus out of their sight. As a result of his power over darkness and disease, the word about Jesus spread to all the surrounding towns. Look at 437. And the report about him was getting out into every locality and surrounding district. Not only had they seen Jesus demand the departure of demons, they'd also seen the healing of a high fever, setting the, setting the stage for Simon's forthcoming call to be a fisher of men. Look at 38 and 39 in chapter four. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they made request of him on her behalf. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and waited on them. This sets the stage for Simon's forthcoming call as a fisher of men. Because Peter has seen his own mother-in-law healed as Jesus rebukes the fever. Now, I always have kind of thought that Simon's mother-in-law got a bad deal on this. Notice verse 39. He rebukes the fever and she's got to get up and serve the table, wouldn't you? If I, if I were she, I'd lay there for a little while act like I wasn't immediately well. Poor woman goes up from being on her deathbed to having to wash the dishes. Doesn't seem like a, a good deal for her. But even while darkness is approaching, the multitudes, verse 40, even as the sun was setting, they brought all who were sick with the various diseases and brought them to Jesus and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. All this healing, all these demons cast out and the crowds are marveling over who Jesus might be. And more specifically, Peter himself has already witnessed a taste of the power of Jesus. Well, now we come to our text today in verse 1, listening to the word of God. Look at 5.1. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, 
He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Well, we had this opening formula. Now it came about. That's an indication in Luke's gospel. He writes the gospel of Luke. He writes the Acts of the Apostles. It's kind of a, a new beginning saying in, the, in Luke. Look at verse 17. He uses it again. And it came about one day. He uses it in chapter 5 here twice, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 14, chapter 17, chapter 19, chapter 24, Acts 5, Acts 9. Well, if you read Luke, you're going to read from time to time. Now it came about. It means there's a new chapter in the stories of Jesus. It marks a new beginning. As a prior chapter, the multitudes begin to press Jesus, making their demands upon him. And now listening to the word of God. They want to hear the word of God. Listening to the word of God is a, a comprehensive way to describe all that Jesus is teaching and saying about the kingdom of God. Remember, his core message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The crowds are pressing. They want to hear the word of God. And hearing is never enough, as this story makes clear. Like it or not, the kingdom of God places a demand, a comprehensive demand, and calls sinners to repent. And as he teaches a growing multitude, Jesus is standing by the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret as it's called here. We know it better as the Sea of Galilee. Well, look at verse two, they're washing their nets. And Jesus saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and they were washing their nets. Maybe you've had a night like that, a fruitless day like that. The night had been endless, and the fish had been few, if any. As a result, the fishermen were surely disappointed and downcast. They began the arduous task of removing the rubbish and the debris from their nets, and then you have to mend the nets where they're broken, getting ready for the next night's catch. We can only imagine in our minds a defeat found in these future disciples as they had nothing to show for a full night of fishing. The crowd edges closer and closer to Jesus and he's backing up and then he sees the two boats and realizes if he can get one of the boats and push out just a bit, he can use the water as an amphitheater to resonate the sound of his voice and the, the hill on the behind to, to capture an amphitheater so they can hear his voice as he speaks. He's there are two boats there. One that belongs most likely to James and John and the other to Peter. And though he's not mentioned in this pericope to Andrew, Peter's brother, they were in the fishing business together. James and John and Peter and Andrew. Look at verse three. He's teaching the multitudes. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat from the boat. It was an amphitheater between the water and the hill around their Capernaum area. There's a little area there that shows that the, the sound of Jesus could be heard by this multitude that was gathering. And Peter had fished for fish. And now Peter's about to become a fisher for the souls of men. 
There's been a remarkable archaeological find. The brothers Moshi and Yuval Lufan were fishermen and they're sort of amateur archaeologists. But in the year of 1986, the Lufan brothers found a boat. The, the Sea of Galilee had the drought time and the water line was down really low and they saw a piece of wood sticking up and they began to unearth it and they realized they might have something and so they went and got professional archaeologists and before the water was able to rise again for 12 days and 12 nights they dug feverishly and they removed a boat it's now known as the Jesus boat in fact, it's time somewhere between 100 B.C. and A.D. 40 is exactly the kind of boat that Jesus would have been in for this occasion. A boat owned by Simon Peter, 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet deep. Had the room for five crewmen, 10 passengers, and over a ton, it could carry over a ton of fish. It's an exciting find because it gives us the provenance that's happening here. A boat like this is the one Jesus was in, one found in 1986. We'll look at verse four, letting down their nets. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water, and let down your nets for a catch. Now, put out in the Greek text is a, a singular, is to Peter alone. In fact, it appears as if all the fishermen are under the command of Peter. Knowing what we know about Peter's leadership, there's no doubt that's probably the case. So Jesus says to Peter and Peter alone, put out into the deep. And then when he turns to the verb let down, it is, it is plural. So Peter, you lead them to put down the nets. And then he tells them all to let down the nets. Put out the boat, Peter. And then to all of them, let down the nets. The whole crew was in on the second command. Then we learn verse five, they had worked hard all night long. This is a mumbled protest. I think he kind of speaks under his breath the way I've got it in my mind. Peter says, kind of maybe speaking to Jesus, but mumbling for the other fishermen to hear. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night long and we've caught nothing. Yeah, well, just what we want to do is get the nets dirty again. Can you imagine you've been up all night long, you've caught absolutely nothing, and now you have gone through the arduous task of removing all the debris from the nets. The nets break, you have to mend them, tie the nets, and they've gone through all of that. And here comes a rabbi. What does a rabbi know about fishing anyway? And says, hey, drop those nets one more time. Now, Jesus is not making a fishing suggestion. Jesus is giving a command. Notice the language that Peter uses for him. He uses the language master. We'll take a note of that again in a moment. Well, in Luke's gospel, we have numerous times that disciples protest against Jesus's ideas. And that makes it real and human for us as we read the text in Luke 8, 24. When the boat and the storm is there, they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. Do something about the storm. Luke chapter 8 and verse 45, the crowd is pressing all around Jesus and someone is healed and Jesus feels the power go out from him and Jesus asks a question, who touched me? And Peter grumbles, Lord, all these people are crowding all around you and you're asking who touched you? How would we, everybody's touched you. How would we have any idea who, who touched you? 
Or in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 13, when Jesus says to those who have five loaves of bread and, and two fish, I need you to feed these 5,000 men and their families. They say, Lord, we, we, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Talk about panic because the crowd has grown and the means are meager. Or in Luke 18, when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, You've got to sell all that you have and give it to the poor if you're going to follow me. You remember what they say there? Behold, Lord, we've left our homes and followed you. The emptiness of the nets preceding the command of the Christ is a clear indication that on their own, on this day, this evening, they could do nothing. They had caught nothing. All night long efforts, they have caught nothing. Now, like the other gospel writers, where Jesus is usually called rabbi, which means teacher, and Luke's gospel is the language of master. In Luke's gospel, the disciples most often called him master. And in fact, even those who are leprous and want to be healed, they use the word not rabbi, but master. It's an indication that Jesus is in command of things. Well, that's a good word for Peter and the disciples to use because we're about to learn along with the disciples that Jesus is actually in command of everything, even the fish of the sea. Master, they say, we fished all night long and we have called absolutely nothing. I'll translate this way, but because you say so, because you insist, just because we're going to have to do what you want us to do, we'll drop the nets. Now, curiously, Jesus asked them to drop their nets in the deep during the daytime. Rabbis must not know that you fish at night. When you fish at night, the fish can't see the shadow of the net and they can't dodge the net. But during the day, the sun, the shadows, the fish might get away. Besides, if they catch nothing again, for this one drop after they've cleaned the nets, they will have to pick them clean again. But Peter indicates, only because you say so, Master, we'll drop the nets one more time. Look at verse 6 and 7, breaking the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled both of the boats, and they began to sink. The catch is literally, literally described as a great multitude. So much so, Luke says, the nets themselves were giving under the strain of the weight of fish. This was a colossal catch of fish. We gain three insights into the master real quick with this catch. First of all, Jesus has prophetic powers to know what will happen. Jesus knew where to drop the net. He knew they would have a great catch. Jesus has prophetic powers to know what will happen. Number two, obedience to Jesus will lead to your success. Obedience to Jesus will lead to your success. And thirdly, and most importantly, 
The catching of the multitude of fish is a symbolic gesture that the disciples will catch multitudes of men for the kingdom of God. Jesus has prophetic powers to know what will happen. Number two, if you will be Jesus, you will have success. And number three, this really isn't about fish at all. It's about catching the multitudes for the Christ. Well, the crew in Peter's boat signaled to their partners. In fact, the literal Greek says they signaled nodding their heads. They can't let go with their hands. They're doing this to James and John to get over here and help us. Our boat is literally sinking. They signal by nodding their heads. In fact, it was common for fishermen to work in pairs and we probably have the James John boat and the Peter Andrew boat. And now both boats are filled to the brim with fish so much so they begin to go under. Perhaps the apex of the story happens, however, in verse eight. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see the hint here, he calls him Simon Peter. Well, he's not yet given him the name Peter. That happens later in Luke's gospel, but retelling the story, Luke knows he's already going to be called Simon Peter. So there's a hint for you early in the text. Both names, Simon, Peter. That happens in Luke 6, 14. It would be hard to make too much of Simon Peter's dramatic response following the colossal catch of fish. Simon realizes he is in the presence of a holy being and he himself is a sinful man. It can't help but remind the reader of the prophetic book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, when God is high and lifted up on his throne and Isaiah the prophet realizes he is a sinful man and he is in the presence of a holy God and he trembles in fear because he realizes woe, as, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 5. Peter is made fully aware of his own inadequacies as a sinful man. That this rabbi who can even call upon the fish to jump in the net is no ordinary rabbi, no ordinary teacher. And now Peter is even scared of the holiness of the Christ who is before him. Now, you might suppose that Peter would have focused, I would have focused on the gratitude for the financial gift of this colossal catch of fish. In my head, it had been ching, 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 ching with every little fish if I were a fisherman, but not Peter. It was wonderful, as in wonder. It was marvelous, as in marvel. It was terrific, as in terrify. That's where Peter was. He was terrified of this rabbi who seemed so holy and he so sinful. Peter realizes that this mural concerns a lot more than a multitude of fish. It concerns the very identity of the one who calls and commands a fish of the sea. 
Peter is the first person in this gospel to call Jesus Lord. Look there in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Oh, there it is. Oh, curios. Oh, Lord. Peter is the first one to make the proclamation in this gospel. The proclamation that we all must make. That Jesus is Lord. If I were to ask you to share what you believe in just three words, could you give me the central tenet of your personal theology in three words? You need to be able to do that. Oh, I know if I ask you to write everything that you believe, it would take pages, maybe even books for you to write down all that you believed about God or about Christ, the tenets of theology. But the early church was able to get all that they believed down to three words, and those three words are a profound statement articulated by everyone who finds salvation. That is, Jesus is Lord. It's the earliest single clause Christological confession. Jesus is Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess Jesus is Lord, you are saved. In fact, Paul envisioned a time when every, every tongue would confess, every lip would pronounce. There will be a day when both the living and the dead will all take the knee and they will all say in unison, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter gets it early in this gospel. Oh Lord, you are Lord. You are curious. It's a word previously used in this gospel for God. And now it is used for Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Don't miss the message of the Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Interestingly enough, in this particular gospel, those who think they have it together fall apart, and those who confess they're broken are made whole. Peter finds salvation because Peter is willing and able to say, I'm a sinful man and I'm amongst sinful people. Oh, Lord, get away from me. You are Lord. Get away from me. You don't know who I am. If you knew the darkness of my heart and the perversity of my thoughts, it is those in this gospel who are quick to say, I'm a sinner and who repent and receive the gospel. Those who are proud those who are religious miss it, so it seems. Verses 9 through 10, we have a, a new kind of catch. For amazement has seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. A new kind of catch the crew casting the nets were amazed by the marvelous haul of fish. We were introduced here to James and John, the fishing partner of Peter, the sons of Zebedee. He tells them, do not fear. Amazement has seized them, but Jesus says, look at the red letters of your text in verse 10, do not fear. 
How many times have we already seen that message to fear not in this gospel? Zacharias, when the message comes that his wife, Elizabeth, will bear a boy, do not fear. When the angel makes the announcement to Mary that she is the chosen one, do not fear. You remember the shepherds on the hillside? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people everywhere. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Fear not, fear not, Zacharias. Fear not, Mary. Fear not, shepherds. And now to Peter, who's afraid because of his sin. Fear not, Peter. You are being called to catch men for me. Look at that little language there from now on. You might put it this way from this day forward. Everything in your life has changed, Peter, from now on, from this day forward. You can forget about the fish, for you will be fishing for men. And then verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, that's those two boats full of fish dipping water as they go. They left everything and followed him. The only way that you or I can follow Jesus is to leave everything else behind. They left everything and followed him. Have you left everything to follow him? You cannot follow the teacher and bear baggage behind you. In fact, Luke describes them as leaving everything everything to go after this teacher. That moment of the colossal catch of fish, Peter realizes that this rabbi is the Lord himself and he's afraid because he's a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid because you are repenting of your sin. You will follow me and you will catch men for me. And they left everything and followed him. You imagine the scene of James and John dropping those nets at Father Zebedee's feet and saying, hey, we, we've got to follow him. It's not the plan you had for us, Dad, but we're not in the fishing business anymore. At least we're not fishing for fish. And Peter and Andrew leaving everything to follow him. Or Matthew later on in the the walk of Christ closes the tax books and says, guys, you, you count the fish and you collect the taxes because I'm done. They left everything to follow him. How do we respond to the miraculous Jesus? The crowds, we're told, are simply amazed in Luke 4.36. In 429, the folks in Nazareth are offended because he claims to be the Christ when he says the prophet Isaiah is fulfilled in him and the kingdom of God has arrived and they try to toss him off a cliff and stone him. The crowds are amazed. The folks in Nazareth want to push him off a cliff. The religious leaders in chapter 5 will call him a blasphemer in verse 21. There's only one right response to Jesus, and that is found in Simon, to realize he is Lord of the land and the sea 
and Lord of your life. And to realize that in comparison to the one who is holy, that we are awfully sinful. Oh Lord, do you know who you're dealing with? What Peter is saying, something like this, Jesus, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And Jesus, Peter, Jesus says back to Peter, I know exactly who you are and I'm calling you into my kingdom. Maybe that's your response today. You feel the presence of a holy Christ by the power of his spirit this morning with your live streaming, watching on television, you're here in this room. You feel the call of Christ upon your life and you're thinking in your own mind, in your own heart, Lord, if you really knew who I was, you would get away from me. And Jesus said, I know who you are. You've never said a word. You've never had a thought. You've never committed an action that I didn't know about it. But Jesus is going to take care of Peter's sin and my sin and your sin by his death on the cross. And then he calls Peter, come on, from this day forward, you'll be catching men. Maybe you're here this morning in the sanctuary and this is your from this day forward day. This is your day to proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is your day to become a fisher for men, a claimer of the Christ one to call him Lord. I know how the multitude responded with amazement. I know how his neighbors in Nazareth responded by trying to kill him. I know how the religious authorities responded by saying this can't be true, he must be a blasphemer. And I know how Simon Peter responded because he says, you're the Lord. What I don't know is how you'll respond this morning. Will you join Peter in saying, I'm a sinner and I need a savior? Will you leave everything behind from this day forward to follow him? Let's pray. Oh God, what a story of a colossal catch. The story comes back to us. We are drawn as readers into the text and we become a character. Now the, the rabbi who knows where the fish are turns to us and says, what about you? Is this a from this day on for you? The Lord who knows everything about you wants to call you to his kingdom today. If his spirit is de de dealing with your heart, maybe this, the, this be the day that you proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Simply saying, oh God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Maybe you're here this morning and it's your call to be a part of this great congregation that wants to reach the multitudes with the hope of the Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.